Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and with me today is co-host Nick Gosling, and we have a special guest, Carrie Baldwin, is with us to talk about the topic of abortion. Carrie Baldwin is an independent researcher and writer with a BA in philosophy from Arizona State University. Her website is mereliberty.com. Carrie is also a staff contributor to the Libertarian Christian Institute and writes at libertarianchristians.com as well. Her writing focuses on libertarian philosophy and reform theology and is aimed at the educated layperson. She challenges readers to rethink prevailing paradigms in politics, theology, and culture. Carrie, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So you you were on to talk with us about the topic of abortion, and that is a very big topic. It's something we haven't dealt with on our podcast directly. We may have mentioned it. We've addressed it a little bit in other ways or briefly. We've mentioned it. We've, we definitely call ourselves pro-life, uh, but we mm-hmm. haven't really spelled out what that means. Uh, but we want to have somebody on who has taken a really deep look at the topic of abortion and to talk about the the goal of ending abortion. I mean, I, I think in a way we would say that that's probably the main goal. Uh, the, the conundrum is how do we, how do we do that? Because there are problems with, uh, I call it the, the prohibition paradox. If you want something to be eliminated, it may not be the best way to make it uh, prohibited. And so mm-hmm. there's that conundrum that we have to deal with as well. So why don't we just start with um, what is the goal is the main goal to end abortion, to minimize it, or and how does the Christian libertarian perspective add value to this discussion? I mean, this has been debated for decades now, and it doesn't seem like anybody's changing anybody else's mind. Right. Yeah, I think, first of all, you know, abortion is itself a polarizing issue, and I was trying to figure out why it's such a polarizing issue. And I realized that it's it's very much like the gun control debate and the uh, the vaccination debate. And the things the the two things that all three of these topics have in common is number one, there's a question of actual loss or potential loss in, of life involved in in all three of these uh, topics. There's also a fundamental question of rights. So you have this dichotomy between individual rights and the potential or actual loss of life, particularly for children in all of these cases. And so I think that's what makes it so polarizing and so emotional. And so we have a tendency to get lost in the weeds on the on the topic. So what is the main goal? I mean, that has been that has been my my question for a while. And I grew up in a pro-life household. I was, you know, there helping my mom with with right to life activism, stuffing envelopes, going to protests. So I've been very heavily involved in it from a very early age. And so I've seen, I've been on that side saying, hey, we need to, to criminalize this. And so I, I I get that that side of the argument, but the the question about whether or not we should criminalize it 
really involves a question about why we need to criminalize it. Is it to save lives or is it simply to punish the people who are paying for abortions or, you know, paying to perform those those procedures? You know, if the goal of ending legal access to abortion is simply to judge the, the people who, who do abortion or to seek abortion, then the insurmountable task set before pro-lifers is to persuade 51% of state legislatures, state, state legislators to do the morally right thing. But this is exactly what we've been doing for almost a half century, is calling for the criminalization of abortion. So this is nothing new. And how many times have we had a conservative majority in Congress and a conservative executive branch and a conservative majority on the Supreme Court? You know, it's never been overturned. Roe v. Wade could have been overturned, and, and it never has been. And this is actually what has caused so many people in the pro-life movement to say, mm, maybe I'm not going to endorse this anymore. I'm not going to vote this way anymore because nobody's actually making this change in, in government. It seems like there's a lot of people who this is no longer their last standing single issue to vote on um, mm-hmm. because, I mean... I had a lot of conservative Christian friends who, you know, made a lot of justifications for voting for Donald Trump, who is mm-hmm. by no means the Christian paragon of, of virtue and right. ethics and like the leader that we all wanted, you know, uh, yeah. th- that that I grew up, you know, so in the pro-life activism movement, we, we didn't want that. And so mm-hmm. it, it does seem like even abortion isn't the last you know it it is for some people it's like oh well you know maybe trump will appoint a more conservative supreme court justice so that's easily argued by what you just said even that doesn't even actually get you the answer that you're looking for so the the, and the other thing is and i just wanted to maybe ask you the question you said that you grew up in sort of an activist um you grew up in the pro-life movement and mm-hmm. you thought it should be criminalized. I grew up in the same, in a, sort of the same environment where it was definitely an evil. It was a plight. The liberals were, you know, uh, destroying America. That kind of that kind of mentality. And abortion was was definitely something. I wrote, I walked, a, uh, did a march for life. I think I did that two years uh, in a row, and I was very proud of that. But I never thought about it in terms of criminalizing the people who either perform it or, or who sought it out. Well, I think I think the I think maybe maybe it was just me. Maybe it was just short short term thinking. But I never. Mm-hmm. I just figured, oh well, if we make it illegal, well then it's illegal and no one can do it. Right, and no one can do it. Yeah. Well, and I think um, you know I I distinctly remember the the criminalization aspect, and I believe that this is still the case with uh, with right to life. The criminalization aspect was just from the perspective of criminalizing the abortionist. It wasn't ever the idea that we were going to charge women who who aborted their their unborn babies with murder. It was that if there was going to be a charge of murder, it would have to be the abortionist because they would be the ones who are breaking the law. And women have always been seen as uh, a victim in some way, a victim of their circumstances or, you know, a victim of rape or, you know, whatnot. But she, even before Roe v. Wade was decided, you know, when abortion was illegal, the mother was never charged with murder if she was found to have aborted her baby, it was the abortionist or the doctor who performed it. So, you know, the the pro-life movement historically has just been trying to 
you know, get back to the good old days, sort of, so to speak. And only recently have you have we been introduced to this idea of abolitionism and and actually charging the woman with first degree murder. Um, and so that's sort of a a new thing. You know that that calls into question a lot of things about the nature of of abortion and why women are doing it. You know, one thing that that I did, I found a study that was done by a political science professor from the University of Maryland in Baltimore. Her name is uh, Laura Hussey. She went through and she did a she did a study about just the the status of the pro life movement and what was working and what wasn't, you know, what she found was that there was four major problems with the pro-life movement. The first was that the pro-life movement has a tendency, a strong tendency to spiritualize abortion. And, you know, this is, this is the idea that women are seeking abortion because of sin. And this is true, but spiritualizing it and saying that, you know, the only way to solve this, this uh, problem is by preaching the gospel has been an ongoing failure. I mean, the the predominant belief in the pro-life movement has been a Christian one. That's been the heart of a, of a lot of pro-life activism is trying to preach the gospel as, as women are going into Planned Parenthood clinics. And this is ultimately unnecessary for, for winning the fight. If abortion is a strictly spiritual failing, right, then we can't fix it anyways. And Christians should should know this. So getting the state to write a law won't absolve that that spiritual failing either. If it's a spiritual failing, regeneration should solve that problem. Yet fifty four percent of women getting abortions are are self professed Christians themselves. That's a big percentage. Yeah, that is a big percentage. I mean, quite frankly, you know, you have the abolitionists who who want to see abortion end. You know, if we just practice what we preached with Christian women, we could wipe out half the death toll. But there's a sense of of inconsistency and even hypocrisy when you have Christians preaching on the street on the street corner, right? About the gospel, about how they're sinners, how they're, you know, they're murdering their unborn children, and they're preaching at at women who are ostensibly non-believers, and they're ignoring our Christian sisters walking into Planned Parenthood right behind them. You know, this isn't this isn't a spiritual issue. You know, the tendency is to say, well, these these women, these Christian women who are getting abortions must be backsliders. They must they they must not have a strong enough faith or they made a false profession. But, you know, we should be asking them why they're going in there to begin with. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to like accuse people. I mean, that doesn't solve the problem. No, it doesn't solve the problem. Um, and you know, certainly if it's a sin issue, you know, if it is a spiritual issue. Who's the only one who can solve the spiritual issue? Well, that's Christ. That's, you know, his sacrifice on the cross. And that doesn't, that doesn't mean that it changes our present circumstances now either. So, it doesn't solve the problem. Now, the other thing is that by spiritualizing the issue, we've made it a religious issue. And so, you have a lot of, you have a lot of people who say, you know, the pro-life movement doesn't really get to write legislation on this because that's a religious argument and we can't create legislation from, you know, a religious argument. But you have non-Christian pro-lifers out there. You have atheist pro-lifers, pagan pro-lifers, Buddhist and Muslim pro-lifers. Uh, you have pro-lifers on the other side of the aisle, right? Feminist pro-lifers, liberal and progressive pro-lifers. And then you have the the libertarian pro-lifers. I know the uh, Libertarians for Life website 
is uh, created by an, an atheist and a scientist. So, you know, we're, we're disenfranchising by spiritualizing the issue. We're actually disenfranchising all of these other people we could be joining forces with. I actually, uh, gosh, I watched this video from an abolitionist saying, no, we can't join forces with these non-Christian pro-lifers because that constitutes syncretism and pluralism. And that's flatly false. And that, that comes from spiritualizing the, the issue and making abortion solely about the gospel and preaching the gospel. So, we're missing an opportunity by doing that. The second problem that the pro-life movement faces has to do with legislation. And there's two kinds of legislation. There's incrementalism, which is largely based on supply-side economic theory, which, you know, any libertarian can tell you what's, well, any well-read libertarian can tell you what's wrong with supply-side economics. But the other legislation that is problematic is personhood laws. Personhood laws basically are allowing the government to define when personhood begins. That separates the concept of human life or humanity from personhood. And that is, is eugenics. That's based in eugenics. Eugenics says that there are human beings who are not persons. And if we are giving the government the authority to define personhood, then they will take the authority to redefine personhood when majorities change. You know, the personhood laws I actually find to be quite dangerous. The incrementalist laws, which just try to regulate the supply side, right? So, these are the laws that uh, try and say, well, you have to, you know, have an ultrasound before you get an abortion, or you have to have a waiting period, or you have to be, you know, in a clinic with, you know, this kind of medical equipment, right? That's just regulating it. And of course, that's not going to work because that doesn't deal with the demand. That doesn't deal with why women are going to seek abortions. It's not dealing with the demand. It's not considering supply in relation to demand and vice versa. And in addition to those two things is the fact that political pro-life activism now is a career. It's a career for for pro-life lobbyists, and it's a career for politicians. Uh, so there's a vested interest in maintaining the tension between the pro-choicers and the pro-lifers and, and keeping it an argument. Because even though you have people who qualify themselves, you know, these are the people who say, well, I'm personally pro-life, or but politically pro-choice, or I'm pro-life, but, you know, and they give some, some reason why they won't support the pro-life movement. You do still, in fact, have those single-issue pro-life voters. And that's a base of voters in the Republican Party. They did it with, with Trump. Trump swore up and down he was pro-life. Pro and they voted for him. Uh, same thing with Mitt Romney. I did a, a comparison back in, what was it, 2012, between Gary Johnson's record and Mitt Romney's record. And when Gary Johnson was governor in New Mexico, he had an incredibly pro-life record. Yet he called himself pro-choice because he was running on the Libertarian Party ticket. Then you had Mitt Romney, who had an incredibly pro-choice record but then called himself pro-life. And you had Republicans, by and large, and pro-lifers voting for Mitt Romney because, you know, he said he had a change of heart. So there's a vested interest in, in maintaining this as a political issue, and that's problematic. It's almost like the right wing's virtue signaling. Yeah, well, I'm not sure exactly what's worse. Either, you know, you have, you have the, the left who is saying, you know, let's keep it safe, legal, and rare. That's what Hillary Clinton's mantra was. 
But then you have the, you know, the left is, is exploiting the victimhood status of, of women in this situation. But then you have on the right, you have Republicans giving lip service to the right to life, to the unborn, to the fact that, you know, this is an issue that needs to be solved and then not solving it. And so, you know, that's just exploiting their lives for political gain. That's it's expo- exploiting the lives of the unborn for their political gain. And I'm not sure which one is worse. Hey, folks, Norman Horn here from LCI. Would you do us a quick favor and rank us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe to us? High rankings helps us get the word out there. And now let's get back to the show. On the political side of things, it's amazing how gullible many voters are on this topic. Because like when you go back and you look at Supreme Court appointments over the last 20, 30, 35 years or so, the majority of justices were appointed by Republican presidents. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what, what we often hear is, oh, well, you know, we have to elect conservatives so we get conservative justices and they're going to overturn Roe versus Wade. Well, the majority of the, the Supreme Court over the past several decades has been appointed by by Republican presidents, and they haven't right. done anything there. And then, like you also mentioned, there was a time when we had uh, a, a Republican in the White House, and well, and, and we have it right now also. Mm-hmm. Both chambers of Congress controlled by Republicans. We had that for a while in the Bush years. We have right. it again right now. Right. There's a, a clause in the Constitution that allows Congress to remove jurisdiction from the federal court system. And Ron Paul actually tried to do this with the abortion issue, effectively doing an end run around Roe versus Wade and overturning it legislatively. They had the votes. They have the votes right now. They could do it right now, but they don't. Hmm. So yeah. I just I, I don't think there's a political solution to this for the reasons, like you said, it's it's ingrained. I also remember I had back when I was in seminary, a professor of mine was talking about this and he was kind of libertarian ish. Uh, but one of the things that he pointed out was he he says, I don't think Roe v. Wade will ever be overturned in this country because mm-hmm. the law has has now solidified it in the public consciousness mm-hmm. to where you're just you're not going to pass another law to flip the switch back. So there's got to right. be a different solution. So how do right. we get towards that solution? Well, yeah, and abortion is it's not simply murder, right? It's not simply ending the life of the unborn. I mean, it is that. It's life uncontrovertibly begins at conception. That's biological fact. Medical science confirms it. The problem with abortion is that it's a service provided by the market. It produces an endless supply of fetal tissue for medical research and pharmaceutical manufacturing. It's the linchpin issue most associated with women's rights, which, uh, you know, creates a sort of market for political exploitation and identity politics. And, you know, that's, that may not be it. I mean, in 2014, there were a flurry of reports from hospitals in the United Kingdom talking about how they incinerated, uh, aborted and miscarried babies in order to provide a source of heating to hospital buildings. So persuading politicians who know how abortion is connected to the rest of the economy is not going to happen. They're just not going to do that. You're going to, you know, the the pharmaceutical lobby is not going to allow it to happen. They will pull funding from, you know, campaign sources. And no politician wants to see that happen. 
so this abortion issue is not just not simply not merely about the the life of the mother and the life of the child it's become a lot bigger than just that so things like like honestly i hadn't really thought about the pharmaceutical implications i mean this is very similar and probably maybe more widespread it's like if we have you know 100 safe cars then the amount of kidney transplants will go down uh that are available for transplants will go down and so there's a medical cost and a a cost of loss of life to having 100 safe cars through say for instance self-driving cars or autonomous vehicles so this is similar to that economic argument that oh well there's 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 something else that could take place that we also don't want however you're bringing it up as a vested political interest and we we could go right. over the arguments of the economic stuff that's not really relevant to our discussion here but the political implications are one of the reasons why it's not politically getting done well you know aside from persuading politicians to do this writing those words on a piece of paper writing you know abortion is murder on a piece of paper and having a few hundred suits agree with that is not going to solve the problem jordan peterson actually talks about abortion and he likens it to uh, you know one of those russian dolls it's problem with inside of a problem with inside of a problem i liken it to you know an iceberg it's it's the typification of a much larger problem now we're sitting here looking at this huge iceberg or this Russian doll. And, you know, we can't just, this is, this is where people tend to get stuck. This is where the people who say I'm pro-life, but get stuck because they see how far abortion has expanded into society. And I don't believe that, that libertarians broadly, but specifically Christian libertarians can just leave it there. Libertarians broadly can't leave it here because libertarianism makes the case that every single human being has basic human rights and that we have these basic human rights because of our humanity, because of our being human. And we take a hardline stance on that. And if we are nebulous on when those rights begin and we start trying to apply some of these pro-choice arguments against uh, making it illegal, then libertarianism will actually crumble under its own weight because it, it it's not addressing when human rights begins. And that's important. So we can't just leave it nebulous. We can't just say, say oh, this is such a complicated issue. You know, there are a couple of things that I do want to bring up. First is the fact that you know, we associate, libertarianism associates rights with ownership, and that the most basic ownership is self-ownership. So, Stefan Kinsella makes an argument for self-ownership, and he notes that the homestead principle, which is usually a t- um, applied to ownership and property, doesn't apply to ownership over one's own body. Our body isn't just laying around in nature unused, and then we suddenly come along and and occupy it, right? And so what he talks about is the objective link between a human being and her body and her direct and immediate control over her body. And so from the point of conception, the zygote has direct control over itself. The mother does not. And this is an important distinction because the very first thing a zygote does is shield itself, making it impervious to attacks from mom's immune system. And everything after that, everything it does after that is under its direct control. Mom does not have direct control over it. And that, that's a libertarian argument for the zygote's self-ownership, which means that the zygote has basic human rights. And if libertarianism is going to hold true 
then we have to honor the basic human rights of the unborn from conception. Now, this requires a couple of things. It does require a paradigm shift. The abolitionists are right about that. They're just wrong about what the paradigm shift is that's, that's required. The first thing is that we need to reevaluate our conception of women because you have the, the, the conservative traditional view of women is that women are weak, inherently unfit for certain work. Their highest calling is to marry and procreate, and they're ironically uh, reduced to gender essentialism. And I say ironically because gender essentialism is a branch of feminism, and the conservative tra traditional view is intended to be a countercultural movement to feminism. So they say that there are differences between men and women, but those differences limit women. Then you have the libertarian, or excuse me, the liberal egalitarian feminist view, which makes women out to be perpetual victims. They're unable to overcome the inequalities of a male-dominated social hierarchy, or in other words, the patriarchy, and therefore they need the state to force an egalitarian society. So in the conservative view, women are dependent upon a husband. In the feminist view, women are dependent upon the state. And in both cases, they're either perpetually weak or they're perpetual victims. And that's not compatible with a libertarian view. So, the, the, the Christian libertarian view is that men and women are equal by virtue of one, are being full image bearers of God and having equal rights and therefore equal responsibilities. But also that men, are, men and women are inherently, necessarily, and manifestly different. So, our differences are inherent in our individuality. It's necessary to a productive and free society manifests through spontaneous order. And our difference is manifest, it's manifest fact as observed through biology, psychology, sociology, and praxeology. And our conception of women is fundamentally important to the abortion debate because the one person who stands between baby and the rest of the world is the woman. So if she's unfit, if she's weak and unfit to be a provider, and reduced to her gender weaknesses and dependent upon men for survival, then she will not be empowered and inspired to bring that baby into the world. So the conservative tradition disempowers her by reducing her to an incubator. Now she's a perpetual victim, oppressed by artificial inequalities foisted on us by male dominance, then she will have found her solution in the state who provides abortion legally and sometimes financially. And this view, ironically, agrees with the complementarian traditionalist view that a woman is too weak to control and take responsibility for her sexuality, and therefore she needs to be released from, her con from the consequences of her choices through the availability of abortion. So this view disempowers her by reducing her to a person who needs constant guard and protection by the state. Neither one of those views are compatible with libertarianism. The Christian libertarian position, again, are that women are full image bearers of God, and though we're corrupted by sin, we're neither perpetually weak nor perpetually victims. This is really important because if the woman is strong and capable and we support her in that way, then she will be more likely to feel like she can bring a baby into this world even if her circumstances are, are poor. You know, we talk about the image of God and man. The woman was created as, as a helper um, in the context of marriage, right? But the word for helper in scripture is Ezer Konegdo. And Ezer Konegdo is a name that God uses for himself in other parts of scripture. And Ezer is a warrior. She's strong. She's a fighter. You know, she's not perpetually weak. She's not a perpetual victim. 
And even the Proverbs 31 woman, she is referred to as a woman of valor. So, the Christian libertarian position can actually change how we, how we conceive of women. And she's not, a, she's not weak and she's not a victim. That's really important for helping to change this, this paradigm. I think a lot of Christian libertarians might be a little apprehensive to think about what it about being a defender of quote unquote women's rights. And, you know, as libertarians, we try not to think too deeply into identity politics in terms of like, how do we identify, you know, there's no such thing as women's rights. There's, there's individual rights, but the the topic, we, we know what we mean when we talk about the the term, when we use the term women's rights. And so a lot of libertarians might be a little apprehensive, especially Christian ones. I know you spelled this out a little bit in uh, an article on LCI, so we will we will link to that in the show notes page. Uh, but give, give uh, a brief, why should they not be apprehensive to, to go that direction? Well, right. When we talk about women's rights, one of the reasons why it's, it's almost an a triggering words or term, so to speak, is that it's too closely associated with with abortion and you know progressive ideas of welfare and entitlement and things like that. And in that article that I wrote for LCI that you're going to link is pointing out what women's rights actually entails from a libertarian perspective, which ultimately has to do with life, liberty, and property. So women in a free society have self-ownership and therefore authority over their own body and sexuality. And that's because of this inherent right over the self. But those those are ultimately the same rights that that men do. Now, in other regions of the world, there are legitimate violations of life, liberty, and property of women because there are legitimate cases of oppression. So, Christian libertarians should be champions of the rights of women as it pertains to life, liberty, and property as we know it from the libertarian perspective, because that's just going to raise, you know, the status of women to their rightful to, to their rightful position as far as, as rights-bearing individuals. So we've talked about paradigm shifts and, and the way that thinking about these things from a different perspective can alter the way we, we view women in society and how we can rethink some of those things in more positive and, and rights-centered kind of ways. But for our individual Christian listeners out there, what do you think they can be doing or should be doing uh, either as, as individuals or in their communities, their churches, their, their neighborhoods, to move the needle in the right direction on this? How can they be um, effective servants to disenfranchised or, or oppressed women in this regard who may feel tempted to go get an abortion? How can they reduce the demand right in their own neighborhoods? That is the that is the question, right? And Laura Hesse in her study found that crisis pregnancy centers are the most thri- thriving part of the pro-life movement, and they are so because they aren't political. They provide services that Planned Parenthood could only dream of, quite honestly. They provide everything from practical support to medical support to legal aid, to helping women find jobs. I mean, crisis pregnancy centers are there not just to help the help women in, you know, their immediate circumstances, although that is necessary, but they are there to help long term. And that is also necessary for for helping women feel like they can actually bring a child into the world. 
you know, as far as the libertarian view on this is whether abortion is legal or not, right? Our, our position doesn't change. So the first thing is to have a high conception of women and their, and their role in society, especially as mothers. Then the second thing is, is to help through those crisis pregnancy centers, help financially, be supportive. And if we're going to actually try to make changes legally, it should be by trying to free up the economy because that is going to be and that has proven to be what brings women out of oppression and poverty is is by freeing up the economy. And that is what's going to really help reduce the felt need for abortion and move that needle along the way towards a full paradigm shift. Well, Carrie, you've given us a lot of content, and this has only scratched the surface of the amount of content that you have Pro- produced and that you have been able to like look into and research. I mean, we didn't even get to a lot of the stuff that we even thought we would have time for, uh, maybe naively thought we had time to fit into a short episode. There, there is more coming from you on your website and you have written a little bit about, you know, we referenced the, the article on feminism a little bit earlier. So give us a little bit of information about where can, where can our listeners go to read more? Uh, when can they expect that and where do they go? Yeah, well, I have been working on this for, for quite a while. Uh, they can certainly go to mirrorliberty.com. That's where all of my, my content is. This particular content and, and everything that I've been working on here is going to be turned into several episodes of my new Dare to Think podcast. So there should be at least three episodes, there might be more, which really draw out some of the things that we talked about today in detail and adds a whole new layer that that is really relevant to the discussion and most importantly puts forward that Christian libertarian contribution on the issue that, that I think is a game changer, I think is unique and powerful and could really, you know, revitalize the issue, but from a, a positive perspective instead of one that feels so polarizing and and downtrodden. So I'm actually really excited about the series. I'm excited to get it out there. Yeah, so you can go to mirrorliberty.com and find my content, my podcast there. Carrie, thanks for joining us today to talk about a, a very important topic. And we hope that our listeners will uh, check you out on Mirror Liberty and listen to your listen to your podcast. Awesome. Well I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you guys. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.